Hi, this is Michael O'Leary, author of Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. You're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Michael O'Leary. Michael is an impact investor and author who studies the many facets of capitalism that involve clean energy, workforce retraining, and environmental areas so that it's not a choice of whether we look at just a profit alone, but looking at profit, people, and the planet. He worked as a founding member of the team at Baines Capital Social Impact Fund, and previously he invested in consumer industrial and technology companies through Bain Capital's private equity fund. He served as an economic policy advisor in the United States Senate and on two presidential campaigns. Michael studied philosophy at Harvard College and earned his MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. He lives in New York City, and Michael is here to talk about his new book, Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. Welcome, Michael. Great to be here. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you. And one thing I love to ask people about to start this conversation going is growing up. Who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I think for both Warren, my co-author, and I, when we think about the way we came into this world, a lot of our influence has been around traditional notions of capitalism, of what it is to have a successful career and then give back. I think one of my biggest influences, especially over the last decade, has been former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, who was the leader of the Impact Fund of Bain Capital that you mentioned. And Deval came in with this idea that in some ways is, is very radical, though it's gaining more acceptance kind of by the day, which is that we've always been pushed to this trade-off, that, that companies have to trade off, you know, do I care about the environment or do I maximize my profits? Do I care about my workers or do I maximize my profits? And the thesis behind impact investing in general, and especially our fund that we had built together, was that these trade-offs are false, that, that many times the best way to create a business with enduring value that is sustainable, that is durable, that is ultimately very prosperous, is not by just focusing on the quarter-to-quarter profits of the business, but is by focusing on these things like what you mentioned, things like the environment, on your social responsibility to your workers, to your community. That notion has been so influential in the way I now look at business, uh, and I credit a lot of that thinking to, to Duvall. Michael, in this time of pandemic lockdown, when we have these pockets of time to reflect and think about things that weren't always present in the way we've structured our lives. I'm speaking in you know, vast generalities now. Many people are reflecting on the virtues and dangers of capitalism. And there's this reflexive inclination to say, well, gosh, we should look at some other system because capitalism has brought forth so many dangers and so many terrible policies. And they're overlooking, completely overlooking all of the strong, beneficial, positive things that capitalism has brought. Can you offer a few of the major arguments or positions that support capitalism's continuation as an economic system, most decidedly with modifications, rather than its wholesale rejection? We should be clear, capitalism, for all that it's done for our economy, for the development of our society, it has a lot to answer for. And when you think about inequality, the lack of social mobility, when you think about climate change, the need to reform capitalism could not be more clear. But I think we also look at what, what we've been able to do, what corporations have been able to do for people in society. We look, at, we look at the problems, we say these problems are flaws of capitalism, but do not damn capitalism. And I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because the pandemic has been a great case study in how corporations have responded. And I think there's been this sort of all hands on deck approach where, where businesses have said, you know, the CEO is not going to take any income this year. You know, so long as our workers are risking laid off, we're going to have no executive compensation. Where I think of, you know, luxury businesses like Louis Vuitton that said, you know, we're going to make, instead of making perfume, we're going to make hand sanitizer. Instead of making you know, luxury dresses, we're going to be making hospital gowns. And I think this response is very much in line with the direction that we're seeing corporations move in, which is recognizing that at the same time that they're trying to build 
profitable businesses and, and create profits for all of their shareholders, for all of their workers, create products for all of their consumers. They can be doing all that at the same time that they're trying to serve a deeper purpose around the environment and around society. And, and I think part of the big trend we're seeing that, that is hopeful in the direction of capitalism is that for a long time, we bought into this idea that, that markets are amoral, that business leaders, business owners, they should maximize profits during the week, and then they can give away some of the spoils of their businesses on the weekend and try and maximize doing good. And it's a sort of separation between our economic and moral selves. You know, on the one hand, we try and do good. On the other hand, we try and do well. And the, the development I'm seeing now that we try and write about in Accountable is the rejection of that separation, is the reunification of our moral and our economic selves and saying, I can both do well and do good at the same time, uh, and that I can have a career, I can build a business that serves a purpose deeper than profit, and that is not just good for me as a owner, not just good for my shareholders, but also good for all the stakeholders who are involved. And that includes workers, my customers, my communities, and my environment. Michael, let's break that down a little bit further, because that's a really interesting thing for the small business leaders listening, is that companies of all sizes have this separation between the owners, the managers who are doing the, the work in leading teams, and then also their customers and suppliers and communities in which they work and the environment that also becomes part of that. And the distance with larger companies between those different areas and different stakeholders is much greater than for smaller businesses. So if you only have dozens or maybe even a couple hundred members of your team, you see that much more profoundly and the separation isn't there to quite that same degree. How have some of the companies that you've studied looked at bringing together, integrating, and reunifying some of those separations and gaps? One of my, my favorite examples from the book is a, is a business called the Kyanite Mining, Mining Corporation, the Kyanite Mining Corporation in rural Virginia. And this is a business that had been founded by Guy Dixon, who's the current CEO, by his grandfather. You know, he grew up working in the company. His kids are growing up working in the company. It is very much part of the community. You know, there are no shareholders that live off in Singapore and London who are, who are demanding that he maximize short-term profits. You know, he is of his community. And, and so even though when I go and I, I talk to him and I walked around the, the mine with him, he doesn't necessarily use the terms sustainability and corporate social responsibility and all the acronyms of CSR and ESG, you know, all the buzzy things in this space. What he thinks about is he thinks about, you know, how do I make sure that, that my workers have good jobs? You know, he's so proud of the fact that you know, even in bad financial times, you know, they've retrained workers to move to different parts of the organization, but they've never had to fire workers for economic reasons. And you know, if, if right now the average tenure in the American workforce is something like four years, something like that, that the average tenure at, at the Kinite Mining Corporation is 20 years. And there are people who retire at 65 not 65 years old, but 65 years of service at the company who started there as teenagers and retired in old age. And when I hear some of these economic theories of the invisible hand or uh, of Adam Smith, you know, I'm reminded in the book, we go back, what did Adam Smith's economy look like? You know, when he was writing The Wealth of Nations in 1776, there were almost no corporations anywhere in the world. You know, 90% of Americans lived in the countryside, almost all commerce happened at the local level. And so the idea that we'd be applying these theories that in many ways were built around economies entirely composed of small businesses, now to a world of global financial capitalism, I think you risk misapplying some of these ideas. Because for him, for Adam Smith, and kind of for these classical economic ideas, all of our economic interactions were embedded within a web of our social and our moral values. And so when you go to buy a broom at the local general store, you know the person you're buying it from, you know who made it, you know what the environmental impact was of creating that product. You fast forward the 250 years to where we are today, and oftentimes you don't know who you're buying from, you don't know what the impact was to create that, you don't know where in the world it was made or how. And so for us, a big part of what capitalism needs is, is we think about how can you bring back this rich web of duties and obligations and values that governs a lot of our lives at the local level? How do we bring that to big global corporations who have millions of shareholders spread across the globe 
where there's so much distance and separation, as you said, between the people who feel the, the ramifications of a corporation's actions um, and the people who are making those decisions. This is something that small businesses understand, and, and whether we're making decisions as leaders of small businesses or simply exercising how we invest or with whom we do business. One of the key principles is that today's society is demanding far more transparency and accountability of the companies with whom we do business because we have choices. In the book, you talk about how Monster Energy, the the energy drink company, was doing terribly with their supply chain. They were ranked dead last among you know mid-sized businesses at that time. And one of the shareholders called attention to it. By calling attention to it, caused some dramatic changes. Can you walk us through how that example unfolded? It's a great example of how, I think, two things. One is uh, something that we just have to recognize at the outset, which is that in a capitalist economy, the capitalist is king. And ultimately, we often think about CEOs, especially of big Fortune 500 companies. I don't think about CEOs as the boss, but the CEOs have to respond to a board of directors who is elected by the shareholders. And so I think the first important part about this story is, is recognizing the power that shareholders have for good or for ill in our economy. Um, and so to the extent that shareholders are, are pushing a focus on short-term earnings, on quarterly earnings, it can be a negative influence on the way corporations are run. But as, as you'll see in this case, they can also be pushing for things like environmental responsibility, social responsibility, and, and so can therefore be a great force in reforming capitals, which just depends on what they're pushing for. But I think the more interesting part about this case, to your point, is this recognition that what makes Monster a profitable, successful business. I think there are states of the world, and historically this might have been so, where the way they treated their supply chain, you know, whether their supply chain was clean or dirty, whether uh, you know, they had suppliers who were treating workers well or poorly, there might have been a time when that did not matter to the success of Monster, that maybe it was an ethical question they should have thought through just as, as moral people, but that it didn't ultimately influence how profitable they were or how much growth in the market they would have. But I think that part of the world, that state of the world is gone. And if you look at polls across generations, you see that Gen Z consumers, millennial consumers care about these issues a lot more than, than maybe baby boomers did in the past or Gen X in the past. But you're also seeing even within generations that these issues are becoming more and more important. And so what happened at Monster was Andy Bahar, who leads an organization called As You So, he formed together a group of shareholders. He, he got a, uh, a survey a petition of customers, of some suppliers to Monster, essentially demanding that Monster pay more attention to the supply chain, that it take more responsibility for the sustainability and the social responsibility of its supply chain. And if Monster executives did not care about this issue before, they certainly had to care about it now uh, because it was landing on their desk with a demand from, from the people who own the company, you know, some small but significant portion of the shareholders, that they act. And so ACT, they did, and, and they responded to the survey, they responded to the petition by going through and auditing almost all of their supply chain, you know, seeing exactly what their impact was, bringing suppliers up to par with, with where they should have been in the first place. And I think it was this, this great case of this recognition that you can't ignore these issues as a business leader anymore, that your, your impact on society and the environment are now just as important as your cost of goods sold or, or as the employees are able to attract and retain is this is what employees and this is what consumers care about. Companies today, in terms of expanding choices and revisiting how capitalism works at a very practical level, we're familiar with LLCs and different C corporate structures of a business. Now we have a B corporation, which are focused for-profit companies that are explicitly seeking to balance profit as well as their purpose, as well as their community involvement. There are a couple examples you mentioned in the book, two that I really liked were Patagonia and Whole Foods, where they build this in to their decision-making. They build this into how they operate as a company. What is it about the difference that you see with a company that chooses explicitly to label and structure itself as a B corporation that makes that kind of impact. What is, what's an example of how you've witnessed that change taking place maybe with one of these companies or maybe another when they choose to announce we're a B corporation to the world? 
in the fight to reform capitalism, I think we've won the battle of ideas, but we're winning the war of substantive action. Where now, if you go out and you pull corporate executives and you say, does it matter to serve stakeholders beyond just your shareholders? That nine in 10 will say yes. You know, that, that you'd be very hard pressed to find someone who would come on your show and say, oh no, you know, the corporations only should be maximizing profits for shareholders and no one else matters. The problem is that if you ask those same corporate executives, you know, how do you think you're doing in serving stakeholders? Are you satisfied with the job you're doing? That 96% of them would say, yes, we're already satisfied. We're already serving stakeholders as much as we need. And that's why we named our book Accountable, because the key task we have before, before us is how to hold corporations accountable to this deeper purpose. How do we hold corporations accountable to all these wonderful commitments that they're now making? And it all comes back to, to what you're referring to with corporations like Whole Foods, uh, which is now actually a part of Amazon, um, but was always built under John Mackey around these principles of, uh, of sustainability, of healthy eating, and corporations like Patagonia, where I think with both of them, it's very clear that their responsibility is not tangential to their strategy. It's not separate from their strategy. It is core to the way they're building their business. And when it comes to the benefit corporation statutes, I don't know if you saw just a, a few weeks ago, the French food giant Danone, which owns Dan in, in the United States, you know, yogurt and all the sorts of foods like that, they voted, their shareholders voted to become the equivalent, the French equivalent of a benefit corporation, where now in their corporate charter, so in the Articles of Incorporation of the business, they now state their social purpose to be health through food to as many people as possible. I think purpose really in, in that sort of way, with that sort of accountability where it is not just a, a mission statement at the top of the website or in their corporate social responsibility report, but deep in the DNA of the company, that that sort of mission statement is in some ways the most distilled form of strategy. You know, So that the corporation now, when they think about how do we attract and motivate and retain the best employees we can, they can now point to a, to a strategy, to a mission that calls much farther beyond the idea of just maximizing short-term profits. And it's something that actually employees today, if you, if you poll employees and say, do you feel connected to the mission of your company? Over half of American workers say, no, I feel no sense of connection to the broader mission of my company, no sense of meaning from what I'm doing. Purpose is how you get that. And on the same thing with consumers, where you ask consumers, do you trust corporations? That interestingly, actually, if you ask them, do you trust your local shopkeeper? Three out of four people will say yes. You know, my local business owner, I trust them. And I think a large part of that is, is they know who they're dealing with. But if you ask them, do you trust corporations? Three out of four people say, no, I don't trust corporate executives. I don't trust them to do the right thing or to tell the truth. I don't trust them to be serving society. And I think purpose is the antidote to that. And setting up as a benefit corporation, where this is not just some empty mission statement, but this is core to your company, where you're putting this in your charter just as you know, serving shareholders is in your charter, that that is the sort of accountability that more corporations should be adopting so that they can actually connect with their stakeholders, like employees, like, like their customers, in ways that shows that they're putting their money where their mouth is, and this is not just hollow talk. See, that really supports the argument of making sure that it's part of your mission because it leads to more trust by consumers as well as more connection, engagement, and sense of mm. alignment from their employees. What I wonder is, could you talk a little bit about when decision makers, CEOs, and senior managers make decisions along these lines, are they necessarily sacrificing profit for this additional benefit of being consciously aware social issues as well as environmental issues. My favorite example might be a somewhat counterintuitive one, uh, which is a business called Earnin, which in some ways you can think of as a good guy payday lender. And you know we try to be somewhat controversial in the book uh, or somewhat deliberately provocative because I think when people think of this sort of uh, you know doing well by doing good world, they often think of solar panel manufacturers or you know, a healthy food brand. And, and it's important to recognize that, that these lessons have saliency for all companies across all industries. And that these are trends that are not focused only on certain sub-segments of the American economy or the global economy, but have real ramifications for all investors, for all business owners, for all executives. And so when I think about earning... Here's the way Earnin works, where if most payday lenders make their money by charging, I think the average in America right now is something like 400% annual interest rates. 
And they're targeting this, this portion of the population that is really in a bind. You know, people who have short-term cash needs, I'm sure you've seen the data on how two in five people cannot come up with $400 in an emergency, that four in five people are living paycheck to paycheck. And so they've got this real demand for short-term cash and often have nowhere else to turn other than payday lenders who then take advantage of the fact they've got a desperate customer base and charge them accordingly. And I should add, are constantly being outlawed and banned and regulated by government because of the, the harm they're having on this community. If you look at the average, this is truly shocking. If you look at um, this portion of people who are having to go to payday lenders, for every one out of eight Netflix transactions, so Netflix will have a monthly recurring charge, one out of eight times Netflix charges uh, this population a fee, one out of eight will trigger an wow. overdraft fee from the bank. And so for every $100 that Netflix makes off this population, banks make $35 in overdraft fees, which just speaks to this idea that it is very expensive to be poor in America. So what does Ernan do? Ernan comes in and says, we will look at your time and attendance system at your job. So we know roughly how many hours you've worked this pay period. And then if you need cash now before your next paycheck arrives, we will give it to you. And when your paycheck arrives, we'll auto-deduct it out um, you know, so that we end up square. But we're not going to charge you any interest rates. We're not going to charge you any complicated fees. What we will do, what Ernan does do, is it says, after we've given you this short-term, essentially, it's not actually a loan. It's a payday advance, but it's similar to a loan. After we've given you this loan, you have the option of paying a tip. And you don't have to. You can pay nothing. But you have the option of giving us a tip. And, and the remarkable thing is, because they've built their business model entirely around serving their customer base, not, not extracting value from the customer base, but truly serving them, so you're serving them as a community, 80% of users tip. They don't have to, but they choose to. And they tip something like 3 4 5% on average. And that's been enough for Earning to raise you know, $200 million from a top cohort of Silicon Valley venture capital firms. And so when I talked to the CEO, the founder for the book, and I was asking him, how do you make decisions to make sure that you know, it seems like there's a, there's a trade-off here. You know, if you charge your customers a little bit more, you make more money, even if that's coming out of the pocket of people who who really do not have much money to spare. He says, that's exactly why I created the business model the way I did. Because in this world, um, you know, this is my own editorializing for a second. In this world, if you look for trade-offs, you will find trade-offs. And if you look for win-wins, you will find win-wins. In this debate, you will always find what you're looking for. And so Rom, the founder of Earnin, he said, if I set my business model up so that it's an optional tip rather than a fee, then I will always be incentivized to figure out how can I be creating more value for my customers in ways that they'll then want to pay back into the pot. And not, how can I turn up fees you know, a little bit this, this month in ways my customers won't know and I can continue extracting a little bit more money. And this, this question of how do you set your business model is one of the most fundamental ones. Because I think of coding academies as another good example of this, where there are coding academies that will charge their customers a flat fee. You know, it's $2,000 to, to learn how to code um, online. And the problem is the incentives there are, I want to get as many customers as possible, but I don't much care what happens to them after they leave. You know, I only care insofar as it, it then affects how many more customers I can attract. Whereas there's other coding academies, like Lambda, for instance, that will say, we will charge our customers nothing but we will take some small portion of their salary if they get a job in a, in a relevant sector as a coder after they take the class, which means that their incentives are all around how do I make sure that I'm giving these customers the training they need to actually get the jobs that we're promising. And I think for, for kind of executives and business leaders all over, that is a lot of the question of how do I set up my business in a way where I'm not constantly faced with trade-offs between doing well and doing good, but where I am building businesses that are simultaneously making money while they're having the impacts that, that I want to be able to have on, on society and on the environment. That really illustrates it very well, because contrasting those two companies, uh, Earnin that really looks to make it optional, which is just a, a remarkable business model. They, they call it, the, they think it's the first pay it forward business model is the way they describe it. If, the, if Tom's Shoes, for instance, pioneered the buy one, give one, Model, you, know, you buy a pair of shoes, we give away a pair of shoes that you know had a real moment. It still exists to a certain extent, but had a real moment a few years ago. It's a lot of companies adopting it that Ernan claims this is the first pay it forward business model, but similarly kind of a radical idea. What I'm looking at is the difference between having it be a central part of the company's structure, policies, decision making, and strategy versus 
a company that isn't necessarily built this way and thinks that it's giving back to the community by sponsoring a little league team. And where it's just a, a peripheral decision and action versus something that's so central, like in the two examples you just talked about. Code Academies, I, I love the Lambda model where the, it's, they don't win until their students win. And it's built around that in particular. We also want to touch on how investors also benefit from making these decisions and supporting companies like this. Many people think that investors are just in it for the payoff and really get no sense of satisfaction or non-monetary benefit when they're investing. But we know from Warren Buffett, who's pledged to donate more than 99% of his wealth to charity, he says that his wealth comes from a combination of living in America, lucky genes, and compound interest. He's such an advocate of compound interest. It's so powerful, you know, from the time of Ben Franklin, people who understand that really understand how to make wealth work. And he says, my luck was extenuated. This is Warren Buffett. My luck was extenuated by my living in a market system that sometimes produces distorted results, though overall it serves our country well. He's understood a perspective that I'd like you to expand upon from an investor's standpoint. You know, Warren Buffett is, is a fantastic example here because in many ways, he embodies a more traditional view of these issues where he and Charlie Munger, his partner, were asked at, at one of the recent Berkshire Hathaway conferences, you know, what are your views on corporate social responsibility? Should corporations be pursuing you know, other aims than just financial return? And both of them espouse this more traditional view of no corporations. You know, the, the goal of American corporate activity is to be more productive all the time. Corporations should be trying to maximize their profits. And then what he does is, you know, he's not a heartless capitalist. He's pledged to give away 99% of his money, but he sort of bifurcates his life into, let me maximize earnings as much as I can through Berkshire Hathaway. And then let me take the spoils of that investing and donate that in ways to improve the world. And so the giving pledge that he, he launched with Bill Gates has now been signed by you know, hundreds of millionaires and billionaires around the world who've kind of taken the same view. And there's deep historical roots to that view. If you go back all the way to Andrew Carnegie and the gospel of wealth, you know, Carnegie amassed this massive fortune at a time when American capitalism looked pretty dirty. You know, there is in the 1880s, go back to Pittsburgh, where a lot of his operations were, one in five male deaths occurred at an accident inside of a steel mill. Uh, and so this was, a, and, and, you know, there's all sorts of other you know, anti-competitive things that the industrious, the robber barons were doing in that era. But then he takes all of his money, he made in, in some nefarious ways, and he donates it on to build libraries and donate church organs and start a fund for his workers who had been injured. And at the time, Theodore Roosevelt had said uh, something to the effect of if Carnegie had employed his business in trying to do the amount of good he's now trying to do as a philanthropist, he could have achieved much, much more as a result. I think that's the direction that investing is going right now. So I, I come from the impact investing world. And impact investing, you're, you're always trying to do two things. One is you're trying to earn a financial return, a fair risk-adjusted financial return for your investment. But two is you have explicit social and environmental goals. And so this is not the, the separation of let me make money during the week and let me give it away on the weekend. This is let me, uh, you know, kind of in one single motion, let me try and both earn money, but in pursuit of a purpose deeper than just profit. Mirror money in pursuit of some sort of you know, social environmental impact. And, and you're seeing that across the investing landscape now. So impact investing, I'll give a couple of figures. Impact investing is now $700 billion worldwide. ESG investing, kind of environmental social investing in the public markets, $11, trillion is now invested in funds that, that have some sort of social or environmental filter or goals. Divestment, you know, universities and other institutional investors divesting from the oil and gas industry is now $11 trillion been committed to divestment. So I think what you're seeing now is a lot of investors recognizing that they should not be maximizing money with one hand and then, you know, regardless of the social or environmental consequences or moral consequences, and then giving away some portion of the proceeds. They're saying, let me integrate these two things. Let me integrate my moral and my economic lives. Um, and the reason they're doing so you can say is, is, you know, is good. It's, you know, from deep moral reasons, but it's also the right strategy today because this is what consumers, these are the sorts of companies consumers want to buy from, that employees want to work from. They're at lower risk of regulatory action. And so if you just look at the latest data, I mean, this is correlation, not causation, but the latest data suggests 
that that funds that are invested, investors that are invested in ESG rather than just traditional companies are now outperforming. And I think the reason is because this is what creates for successful business strategies to focus on these issues. And the reason it is, is because this is what consumers, employees, savers, investors, voters, regulators, this is what people are now expecting from corporations, which is more than just a commitment to maximizing profits. As a result, it's what creates for successful strategy and what creates for successful investing. Michael, as soon as you said the word outperforming, I heard a whoosh of people opening up web browsers to check and see what balance they had in some of their investments. Warren Buffett's also gotten a lot of positive attention because of the giving pledge where he's going to donate 99% of his wealth. But that's not historically unique, is it? I'm glad you brought up the giving pledge because there's this vision of this debate around reforming capitalism that tries to paint people focused on shareholder profits, you know, shareholders, investors, hedge fund investors, as somehow heartless. And I think Buffett is a great example of someone who, despite making immense amounts of money investing in the public markets, is not doing it purely for his own benefit uh, because he is giving away 99% of his wealth. And in many ways, it's a, it's a model of capitalism that has existed for a long time. In the book, we went back to uh, Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie wrote The Gospel of Wealth around the turn of the uh, 20th century. His whole idea was, I'm going to take the massive amount of money I've earned in the production of steel in this country, and I'm going to give it back into church organs and libraries and, and a fund for injured steel workers. And here's the struggle I have with that, is if right now, philanthropy makes up something like 2% of GDP in America, which actually is something we can be proud of. If you look at across other countries, 2% a giving rate of 2% of GDP is actually quite high. My worry, though, is that that 2% is rendered impotent if the other 98% of GDP is working at cross-purposes. Can you say more about what you mean by working at cross-purposes? I'll give you an example. When we look at the Kellogg's Foundation, the Kellogg's Foundation donates all this money to encourage healthy eating, for instance, which is wonderful, a wonderful goal. But if at the same time the Kellogg's Corporation is selling $2.5 billion of sugar cereal to our kids every year, I'm not sure how much impact the Kellogg's Foundation can have. So we look at a question of scale a lot in our research, a lot in our work, trying to understand, is what we're doing on the philanthropic side really enough to counteract what we might be doing on the business and the economic side? And I think what we've followed for too long is this Warren Buffett methodology where we separate out our moral and our economic lives. Where as economic beings, as investors, or as business people, we fiercely try and maximize profits Monday through Friday. And then once we clock out on Friday night for the weekend, we try and do as much good as we possibly can with those winnings. Which I think that was just the dominant ideology that a lot of people have approached business with. It's based on some of these Adam Smithian ideas of the invisible hand, of markets are immoral. And I think increasingly you're seeing employees, consumers, and investors start to reject that bifurcation of ourselves into moral and economic actors, and instead are trying to look for ways where we can reunite our moral and our economic sides. The best example, I think, being impact investing, the field I come from, which very explicitly tries to both do well, earn a good financial return by doing good, by having positive social environmental impact, not as separate pursuits, but in one in the same way. So what you're saying is that it's absolutely integral. It's part of the corporate strategy, its objectives, its goals, how executives are incentivized rather than being some subsidiary of a subsidiary that operates its foundation. Oh, exactly. You see um, too many times, you look at big Fortune 500 companies, you'll see their corporate social responsibility department answer to their marketing department, you know, where it's embedded within their investor relations department, which to me just shows the level of importance and emphasis they're putting on these things. Whereas on the other hand, you have companies like Patagonia or Whole Foods or an example we delve deep into in the book, uh, the online marketplace Etsy, that is all you know, handcrafted goods sold from maker to buyer online. We have a long interview with, with Josh Silverman, the current CEO there. And the way he sees it, he says, our purpose has to be our day job. If we want to have impact on the communities we serve, on the, the mostly women on our platform who are creating crafts to sell, if we want to be able to have a maximum impact on their lives, you know, create as much economic activity for them, as much economic opportunity for them as possible, it has to be our day jobs. It has to be what we wake up every day and do. 
And, and to your point, which I think is a good one, it has to be the way we judge and compensate our people. It has to be the way to report on uh, internally and to our external shareholders and stakeholders, because ultimately, and this is why we call our book accountable, ultimately, we have to be able to keep people accountable to these deeper purposes than just profit. I also liked when we, you described Jim Rogers, the CEO of Duke Energy. He's someone who has also held this to be integral to his company. He's running an energy company, and he's someone who is looking to bring about change so that we're combating climate change and not just looking at it as a side interest as the way that I think many petroleum companies do. And they're looking at more as a threat where he's looking at it as more as an ally and integral to grow his business and educate people about the importance of it. What else do you take away from studying a company like Duke Energy in how they've integrated it so well into the, the DNA of their uh, the corporate culture? It's so funny because someone like Jim Rogers, who, who truly saw himself, he has this great line of, if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And his idea was, if I care about the environment, if I care about the climate, if I care about the future of energy in our country and in our world, the best way I can affect change is from the inside leading one of the largest energy companies in the country. And so some people would look at him and say, wow, what the, what the height of hypocrisy of this man who is one of the largest coal burners in America and at the same time is advocating for a cap and trade system, at the same time is advocating for conservationalism. I don't see it that way. I mean, I, I think I would come down on his side and say, this is the, if we're going to have energy companies in our country and we have to have energy companies, you know, I think a lot of people in the impact investing sphere, you know, kind of the social environmental activists wish we could have a world where kind of plug your ears and close your eyes to the reality of, of the way energy is produced and the cost of the energy is produced and kind of wishful thinking into as if it weren't the way it is. But if we take the world as it is and say, we have oil and gas companies, ExxonMobil exists. We've got, if you look at the stock of cars on the highway today, we need gasoline. Once you accept that reality, at least over the short term, then you say, who do we want leading these companies? And how should we be leading these companies? And that's when you say someone like Jim Rogers, who truly cares about these issues, is the exact sort of person who we want running our companies that in some ways are our most morally perilous. And the divestment debate is a fascinating one because I could not agree more with the, the goal of the divestment debate, you know, where students are trying to get universities to divest from oil and gas stocks. But one of the unfortunate side effects of divestment is it also means that the investors who care most about these issues, about climate change or climate justice, through divestment, also remove their ability to have a voice from the inside as shareholders to push for change. So as happy as the story I find around Jim Rogers at Duke Energy, there's other stories. There's an energy executive, David Crane, at a, at a different, at a competitor called NRG, that he had a very similar goal, a very similar goal to Duke, where he was investing in renewables and he had committed to try and eliminate 90% of their emissions over the coming decades, but he didn't have the support of his shareholders. And so when an activist hedge fund, uh, Elliott Management, came into the stock, they were able to force him out as CEO and put a climate denier on the board of directors. And I look at that and I say, how are they able to do that? Part of the reason is because we don't have enough good guys in the room, you know, good guys and good girls in the room who can actually be pushing companies from the inside as executives, as shareholders, towards what we actually all want. That's such a critical point. You have to have people who have the understanding of the issues, who have responsibility for driving the company to be successful. They're setting the metrics and they're looking beyond just return on capital, return on investment. They're looking at other metrics that help the companies recognize how to do good in the world. What are some of the, the other ways that they measure that? Well, yeah, I think this metric point is really important. Because a lot of people will be focusing on the American workforce, for instance, in investing. How do we create companies that invest more in American workers, that keep jobs at home, that, that train and upscale their workforce rather than automating or offshoring it? But right now, if you look at what does the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, what does the SEC require public companies to report on with regards to their workers? And it is a single number. All that a company, a Fortune 500 company, a big public company is required to report is the number of workers they employ, nothing else. There's a bunch of numbers they have to report on executive compensation. But if you think about you know, the investment in workers through skill building, 
they don't have to report on that. You think about what's your retention? How long do your workers stay with the company or do you churn through workers very quickly because you don't have a good working environment? They don't report on that. If you think about diversity, I mean, what could be more basic fact about a company than what percent of its workforce is male or female or is African-American or Hispanic or Asian or white? None of those numbers are required to be reported on by the SEC. And so this metric point, a lot of folks will say what gets measured gets managed which is true to a certain extent. Unless companies report on this, shareholders can't keep them accountable. The public can't keep them accountable. And so one big area for the government to get involved, I think, you know, I'm not an advocate that this is a solution that only government can solve, but I'm also not an advocate this solution that the government can't be involved in. One big area they can help out is by issuing requirements for companies to have more standardized, audited, uh, mandatory ESG or environmental and social reporting requirements so that I as a shareholder, that all of us as citizens can hold these corporations accountable for their impacts beyond profitability. We often say that what gets measured is what gets managed. A corollary I've observed is that whatever executives get incentivized to do is what gets prioritized. You know, it's, such a, it's such a great point on the executive compensation front. And actually, one of the most interesting things we discovered was we're looking into the different ways that government has gone involved in, in trying to solve some of these problems. Sometimes the great effect, uh, like a cap and trade system that ended uh, acid rain in the early 90s, but sometimes a negative effect. So right now, if part of the problem we have is that we think executives are too focused on their share price, you know, to the, to the detriment of workers or consumers uh, or other stakeholders. One of the reasons why they're so focused on share price is that the government passed a law uh, saying, going forward, this is in the 90s in the Clinton administration, saying you can't pay executives a salary of more than, I think it was a million dollars, something like that. You can pay them more, but anything beyond that has to be performance-based. Companies say, okay, well, we're going to limit our salaries to a million dollars. What? How else we compensate our, work, our executives? I guess we'll do it on share price because that is as performance-based as it gets. So as a result, you can see from before the law was passed to after how many more executives started being compensated on their share price? So you end up in this scenario where we are today, where in an effort to try and rein in executive compensation, we accidentally started forcing a focus on exactly the one metric that we don't care about as a country, we shouldn't care about as a country, which is the quarter-to-quarter, month-to-month, year-to-year share price of particular companies. What we're starting to see now, to your, to your question, we're starting to see the beginnings of executives be paid off of something more. And this is an area where I think impact investors, uh, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, smaller companies, private companies have an opportunity to lead because we can, in the impact investing community, test out different ways of compensating managers and say, okay, we're going to compensate you in part on how much you grow the company, but also in how satisfied your employees are or in what your impact on the environment has been. We can add in a broader basket. You can create a formula that includes three, four, five different of these metrics and test out how does it work? You, know, you want to create incentives that align interests. And, and I think increasingly we're seeing that extends much beyond share price. So what occurs to me is that if we're changing the incentive system, those that have figured out how to make the share price jump at the appropriate times are going to resist that because it's not in their self-interest to do that. What has to happen in order to get the internal support for people to broaden that basket of metrics that we judge the successful company by? Well, let's pull back the uh, you pull the thread a little bit. You say, well, who sets executive compensation policies? That's the board of directors at a big public company. And who appoints the board of directors at big public companies? That's shareholders. But today, if you go back to 1950 and look at who holds shares and how do they hold them in America, the would look is you or I, if we were saving for our retirement, we might invest in six, 10, 15 specific companies, GE or Ford or AT&T. We'd own their stock directly. We might actually have their physical stock certificates in our own home. Today, it looks nothing like that. Now, if, if it used to be that 95% of all shares were held directly by individuals, now 73%, almost three quarters of all shares are held by institutions often on our behalf. And so I invest through a mutual fund at Fidelity, say, and Fidelity actually owns the shares of the underlying companies. I don't. Which means that when a shareholder vote comes up, say, to appoint a new board member, 
Fidelity is casting that vote, not me. Fidelity hypothetically is doing it in my own best interest on my behalf, but I don't have total control over that. And here's where that's a problem, is that you think about all these intermediaries in our financial system, all the mutual funds and ETFs and hedge funds and private equity funds, all these institutional investors who stand between the ultimate savers, us, and the companies, what are their incentives? The way you often see, if, you, if you're a mutual fund manager, you're paid off a percentage of all the assets you have under management. So your goal is to get as many assets under management as you can. How do you do that? Is by outperforming your benchmark or your competitors over the last quarter, or over the last year. That's usually the, the time frame that you're, you're judged on. And so their incentives are just as short-term as executives are. They're trying to think of, how do I boost the stocks in my portfolio? How do I boost their stock price in a short-term uh, way as possible? And so they will end up advocating for policies, whether it's share buybacks or, or cutting employees or cutting R&D. They might be advocating these policies that are actually shorter-term interests than what my, as an ultimate saver, interests are. That's a hard problem to solve, but at least that's the leverage point in our economy where if we can work on changing that, that will then flow into how all the incentives and corporations uh, are set. And I think that's the work that ESG-oriented, you know, environmentally socially-oriented managers are trying to take on. You've now seen $12 trillion flow into these sorts of uh, ESG-oriented investment portfolios. That's what impact investors are trying to do in the private markets, you know, $700 billion invest in impact funds. It's trying to prove there's a different, better way for these financial intermediaries to act. And ultimately, I think if we can shift those dollars, that will flow into how all corporations are run. So if small business leaders listening to this wanted to follow developments, what would be two or three websites they ought to tune into just to see what's going on, authoritative, accurate, reliable websites, uh, what's going on in the ESG space? Let's see, two I would point out that I particularly like. One would be the Stanford Social Innovation Review. So uh, most business leaders, many business leaders know of the Harvard Business Review kind of sets the standard in, in business writing, keeps you current with what the latest theories are around workforce management or investing or all else. The Stanford Social Innovation Review, I think it's ssir.org, they try and do a similar thing, but on the social side. Oftentimes that bleeds into uh, things like philanthropy, but it also has a big focus on impact investing, corporate social responsibility, those topics as well. Another one that's got a similar bent would be Impact Alpha. Impact Alpha. They similarly try and publish a lot of work, a lot of articles, research around these topics. The, the organization I might advocate most, especially for small business leaders, is B-Labs. B-Labs puts out something they call the, the B Corp Certification, where they help mainly small business owners, entrepreneurs, though they have some large public companies as well, think through how do we have impact on all of our stakeholders? And if we want to, how do we get certified and you know, get a seal of approval, essentially, saying that we take these things seriously and that we're making progress on these issues? And so if you start looking for it, you'll see on a lot of consumer products, a B Corp certification. It's a little B in a circle with corporate and below it. And these are all coming from companies who've recognized that consumers, employees uh, increasingly want to work for and buy from companies that are committed to these issues. And, and uh, the B Corp certification is, is one way the companies are trying to prove that they are. That's terrific. And I, I know that we'll be able to refer to those resources as a valuable follow-on to this conversation. Michael, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? All right, let's do it. If you were to put a slogan about your work on a billboard that every key stakeholder and decision maker had to read each morning, what would it say? I think the slogan would be that in the fight to reform capitalism, we've won the battle of ideas but we've lost the war of substantive action. And I, th I think the reason why I put that one specifically is you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone today to debate who would say, no, no, corporations should only be maximizing their profits. No, they have no responsibilities beyond that. Almost everyone agrees, at least in principle, at least in theory, that you should be putting some weight on these issues. The problem, though, is that many of the measures so far have been, have been halfway. And when done halfway, they can breed more cynicism than they can idealism. And so... I think that the message that we're trying to get across is not only to believe in these ideas, but to hold each other accountable to actually committing to achieving them. It sounds like that should be part of a title of a book. Yes. 
If only I worked in citizen <laughs> capitalism, I could have had the whole title there all at once. Michael, what's the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months? I think I would have to say uh, reading. I think uh, a lot of the books, the one benefit of quarantine, of social distancing, is it's got more time to be consuming content at home. I think I, like many, that has meant a lot of uh, video online content, but it's also meant a lot of reading. And uh, especially in the research for the book, I had the opportunity to go back and, and read a lot of what's been written in this area, a lot of economic history. Um, two, I might recommend. One would be uh, Whole Foods founder, John Mackey, who built that company up, wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism, which is more of a playbook around these issues than Accountable is. More of you know, how can I, as a business leader, put these principles into practice. Wonderful book. He's, I think he's written a follow-up that might be coming out this year. And the second one is a book called Americana uh, by a uh, author, Boo uh, Srinivasan, which takes you through an economic history of America, shining light on a lot of the things we learn in US history class, but entirely from the angle of what role did corporations play in this? What role did economic policy play in this? And I just found it fascinating to see that the kind of the political history of America had this parallel economic history that we don't usually learn about. What would you say on the personal side was a good expenditure of something upwards of, a, you know, under $100? Well, it's a depressing one to think about now, given that we are all stuck at home, but, but travel. I, I took some incredible trips related to research for the book, getting to go to shareholder meetings and elsewhere. One of my favorites, um, which, which I'll call personal, though I'll admit uh, ended up making its way into the book, was um, down to rural Virginia, to uh, the Kinite Mining Corporation, where Guy Dixon is you know, third or fourth generation leading that business and getting to see what a local company looks like. Look, they're a mine. You know, they, they, they take a material out of the ground. They, they take mountains. You can look out his window and you can see uh, you know, a mountain where half of it is missing because of the mining operations they've done. But you can also see how responsibly he runs that business you know, with an intergenerational mindset, with a, with a sense of how do I build a company that is committed to the environment, that's committed to my workers. And so I think my bus ticket down there was far less than $100 and, and, and some of the best money I spent in the last year. Again, it's an emphasis on having someone who has those values, having a seat at the table and maybe even at the head of the table in order to drive that kind of change that really underscores that point. Well, exactly, because I would say you know they mine kyanite, which is kind of a material used deep in the industrial economy. This is the sort of thing that lines the furnaces that are used to create the steel that eventually goes into battleships, you know, that sort of thing. As long as we have an economy that requires kyanite, we need someone who's mining it. And I would far rather be someone like Guy Dixon, who lives in that community, who grew up in the business, who, whose children he hopes will one day be running that business. I'd rather him be doing it than, you know, Rio Tinto or some massive global corporation that doesn't feel the same sense of responsibility to the local community and to the local environment. Another fun fact I read in your book, Accountable, was about the two versions of Monopoly that came out, mm. where the originator of it, Elizabeth McGee, had a version, the one version was the one we know today, where you win by driving people out of the game or into bankruptcy. And the second version was one where people actually came together and built something collaboratively through amassing wealth. And it's kind of like the, the post-Carnegie model, if you will. What does that really say when choices like that don't make it to the market? How does that really illustrate an important lesson for us? Oh, it's such a wonderful little example that captures so much in such a, uh, in such a miniature form. Because for her, she was, she was creating these games in the progressive era. And they were rebelling against the own excesses of capitalism that kind of came from the robber baron, you know, Carnegie, Rockefeller era. And, and her goal was to prove if you could play these games in succession, you know, first you play the, the extractive, uh, cutthroat, monopoly version that we know today, and then you play the kind of stakeholder, cooperative-oriented version that you would see by playing one after the other, the benefits of building an economy that is not so adversarial, you know, not so zero-sum, us-first-them, but is more built around how do we create value for everyone, myself included, but also for others. And it is strangely telling, perfectly telling, that when Parker Brothers acquired the game, that they only started to sell the first one, the, the version of Monopoly we know today, that they shelved the second one never to see the light of day again. Why? Because they, they thought it would sell better. You know, what a perfect encapsulation of capitalism. What they're also showing is that they didn't even give the second version a chance for consumers to vote with their pocketbooks and say, 
gosh, this looks interesting. Let's purchase this. And they could have seen whether there was a response to it. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of this, uh, this I can't remember if we've talked about it yet, but this idea of homo economicus, you know, the economically rational man that economists will use as kind of their model human. And homo economicus cares only about his or her, her own self-interest. And it's just not true. It's not the way humans actually are, that if you look at the way humans actually interact, for the most part, we are not these kind of selfish, utility-maximizing beings that economists suppose us to be, except for one case, which is economic students. They are the only ones who actually perform the way that economists would predict, and partly because I think they've taken in the lessons that that is the way they are supposed to act, that somehow that is the right way to act. And I think that's the, the Parker Brothers' mistake here is that, you know, give people a chance to decide, you know, this is a board game, not small stakes, but give people a chance to decide ultimately, you know, do we care about others? Do we, do we aspire to create corporations that are, you know, serving a deeper purpose than just profits? And I think you'll see that people, especially today more than ever, are thirsting for that sort of change. I think your point about the economic students is a reflection of the incentive system. Economic students need to comply and conform to those rigid ideas because that's how they'll be promoted and, and become teachers and professors of economics. <laughs> yeah, what's dangerous is that you know that's one thing in the laboratory, but if all those economic students end up being the financiers who run our global financial system and all of them buy into the same idea that you know, it is somehow economically irrational to care about others you know, beyond your own self-interest, that's a dangerous thing. It's too bad that more of them didn't encounter the dictator game, which is one of those academic studies that probably uses non-economic students. You usually get them from social studies who volunteer because there's free pizza associated with it. <laughs> but in, in the dictator game, you know, one person in the group is dedicated or given the role of dictator and given $10 to disperse as he or she sees fit. And the economic students would say, well, obviously, to maximize personal gain, he or she should just keep that $10. But something else happens. What is it that happens that you've studied and helps illustrate how important this, this phenomenon is? It is remarkable. Because you're right. The economically self-rational thing to do when you're given $10 with the option to give some away to someone else, but not the obligation, economically rational thing, you put the $10 in your pocket and you walk away. But what happens in the, in the lab when they, when they perform this study? Even in the kind of antiseptic form of the laboratory where you don't know the people you're interacting with, you're not going to interact with them again, even then, two-thirds of people choose to give some of the money away. They give away a fifth of the pool on average. And that's actually in line with broader economic research that looks at all these different economics games we can put people through in the lab. And in two-thirds of all cases, people do what is deemed economically irrational. They do things that are pro-social. They, they do things that uh, exhibit a care for others, a care for values and morals beyond what just maximizes their own self-interest. If you go all the way back to Adam Smith, you know, Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations in 1776. For him, that book was part of a larger project in moral philosophy. For him, economics was embedded within the deep value system, the deep social system that people already were part of. It was not this academic, you know, divorced from reality, all people are these atomized homo economicus creatures maximizing their own utility. It was embedded within this web of duties and reciprocal obligations that people felt because at his time, almost all economic activity was local. You know, 90% of people lived in rural environments. Most of all economic activity was happening at the local store, local farmer, all that. We didn't have global corporations the way we have today for the most part. And so even for him, the father of economics, even for him, the idea that humans were both moral and economic was obvious. And yet somehow we've started to ignore that over the, you know, the, the succeeding 250 years but I think that's a lot of what this movement is getting back, this movement to reform capitalism, is figure out how can we, while recognizing the reality that we still need corporations, that we still need capitalism, that we still need the profit motive, how can we bring values back into these decisions so that as we're deciding where to shop, where to work, what sorts of companies to build, that we can be building them in ways that reflect our values that are not counter to our values. I'm thinking of a, a large company, Johnson & Johnson that wasn't founded 250 years ago, but only about 130 years ago. And they still built into their credo something that 
guided them to really show that they were taking in a much more holistic span of thinking. Do you remember the details of how they expressed what they were about as a company? Yeah, there's a fascinating case that is uh, it's often studied in kind of business ethics departments in the in the early 80s. You or some of your listeners will probably remember it around the Tylenol crisis when they discovered that many bottles of Tylenol have been laced with uh, cyanide. This is back before tamper-resistant packaging, and they had to decide what to do. And what they leaned on, what the, the leaders at J and J leaned on at the time, was exactly what you referred to: something called the Credo, which the Credo was kind of think of it as an Uber mission statement that, that they'd put into uh, into being right before the company went public in the 1940s. It was meant to establish what are our values, what do we care about, what's our purpose as a company. What the Credo said was that first and foremost, I'll, I'll paraphrase, first and foremost, our obligation and our commitment is to our patients, You know, people using the products we create. It's, it's to nurses, it's the doctors that serve them. Behind that, it's to employees. Behind that, it's to, to communities that we operate in, to the environment, to, to the government, You know, as a citizen, as a good corporate citizen. You know, and at the very bottom of this long list of who they're committed to serving, the very bottom, and also we're committed to shareholders. But we believe if we can serve those other groups well, shareholders will be well served in return. It's a great example. And so, you know, they leaned on the credo during the Tylenol crisis, and they decided before they even knew what the cost was that they should recall every single bottle of Tylenol in America, knowing that 99.9% of them would be perfectly safe. They knew that if, if we are meant to serve our customers or meant to serve the patients who take our products, that's what's required of us. And at the time, a lot of people said the Tylenol brand is dead. You know, it's how could they could ever recover from this? Not only the Tylenol brand, Johnson Johnson may die because of this, but because of the actions that J&J took, customers continued to trust them, continued to have a lot of goodwill towards the company so that then after they reintroduced Tylenol to the marketplace, it shot right back up. It was the market, dominant market leader that it was before. And I think it's because of their, their real commitment. Now, the, the sad postscript to this story is that Johnson Johnson has been in the news more recently, not for actions like this, but for, for cases of kind of corporate malfeasance, cases of where they knew that there was consumer harm happening. But there was a challenging and somewhat disappointing postscript to this story, which is in more recent years, J&J has not been known for this sort of responsible, patient-centered action, but instead has been plagued by these scandals where they have knowingly sold products that harmed consumers and did so not because of the credo, but in spite of it, which to me says something fundamental, which is that companies are never good or bad. It's that companies can be good or bad or better or worse at specific times under specific leadership. And it's like a sports team. You know, a sports team is never good or bad. The Yankees might have been good during one period and bad in another. But every year they have to prove themselves anew. And I think it's the same thing with corporations. Every year, corporate leaders, corporations have to prove to us they are worthy of the privileges we as a society bestow on them, that they're worthy of our dollars as consumers or worthy of our work as employees. And it's up to us, as all the stakeholders in our economy, to hold them accountable to that deeper purpose. That's a great point. And Michael, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best and talking about your book on all the research that's gone into it that helps readers and people who are concerned about these issues because they're of concern to all of us in our lives. It's not just about profit we want to see companies be successful with, but also as a force for change. We want people to have stability and paths of growth and know that their contributions are leading to making the world a better place. So it's for all of those reasons that are encapsulated in Accountable and all of the examples that you shared with us today. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure to be here. Hey, Michael, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that we can find more about you and your work online? Uh, We've got a website at accountablethebook.com. All the information is there. That's terrific. We're going to link to that site as well as all of your social media pages to make it super easy for people to find you, connect with you, and check out what you're up to so that they could follow along and continue the conversation and 
gain more information that you're sharing as you continue your work. Michael O'Leary, author of Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. Thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.